Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 125 is Victor DeLorenzo, best known for his work starting in 1980 with Violent Femmes. He was an integral part of five albums with them between 83 and 91. You're right now hearing World Without Mercy, which was a cassette bonus track from The Blind Leading the Naked, their third album from 1986. He's also had six solo releases since 1990, and five releases with cellist Janice Schiff as 1913. We're going to be discussing Invisible Shadows from his solo Transophone EP 2020, then Carry Me from his album Victor de Lorenzo from 2013, then a 1913 tune, Arco Pizzicato from The Dream 2016, and we'll conclude by listening to Audrey from his 1996 solo album Pancake Day. For more information, please see victordelorenzo.weebly.com or 1913.com. For more about this podcast, please see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or subscribe to us directly on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, etc. I would love your support. You can rate or review the podcast at one of those places or go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic to sign up for a small per-episode donation. So I will have played a little bit of World Without Mercy, the Violent Femmes tune that you got full writing credit on from The Blind Leading the Naked, 85. We're going to get very quickly to your most recent solo work. Do you want to sketch very briefly, though, the journey? I know you left the, the Femmes in, in 90. This is your sixth solo release. You want to say a little about that progression, how you got to the Transophone EP that we're about to talk about? Going from Violent Femmes, the last time I played with Violent Femmes was in 2013. We did four shows together, and since that time, I've been re-emerging as a solo artist. And I've always kind of had a little place in my heart for solo endeavor, because I started out as a performer, as an actor, when I was six years old. And I continue to do work as an actor. But going from uh, stuff in my solo career, then joining Femmes, and then getting back to my solo career, I find that the road to transophone my EP has been one that's been fraught with many joyous occasions and some disasters. This is a song off of my new five-song EP called Invisible Shadows.
I was a little confused when this started because it has this very freeform introduction before it locks into the groove. Do you want to say a little about how the order in which these bits were put together? Was this whole thing a live jam of some sort, on drums at least, or was this mapped out beforehand? This piece, Invisible Shadows, was designed as a suite. There's three distinct sections in the song, and the backbone of the three different sections consists of different drum systems. I wanted to make the sound of the drums and the rhythmic aspect of the drum playing different for all three sections. And then I figured the center section would have some kind of a vocal lyrical content. I wasn't quite exactly sure what I was going to sing or write about, but I saw something on television talking about the idea of shadows really having no physical form other than just reflection. So that's where I came up with this idea of invisible shadows, because if you're scared of a shadow, well, an invisible shadow would make you very scared. So after I came up with that premise of how to construct the lyric, then I figured for the third section of Sweet, I wanted to have some kind of a capitulation. And I started thinking about one of my favorite songs, A Whiter Shade of Pale by Proko Harum. And I figured I'd a little bit of a homage to that in the third section of the song. Yeah, I can hear that with the slowed down organ melody there. The drums, though, maybe it's just the delay that you're adding to them. It almost sounds like it's getting reggae here. There's three distinct drum systems featured in the three different parts of that piece. And the last section, I was using quite a bit of delays and also drum set overlays. So even though it sounds like one particular drum set, there's actually three drum sets there, one of them being a mechanical drum computer. 
Yes, when I'm hearing the delays, is that just part of the drum machine sound itself, or are you doing treatments after you're putting the basic beats down? No, that's the whole treatment that I did with the drums for that particular section. Let me pick out a couple little bits. 57 seconds in. I guess what's with the super lo-fi 80s aesthetic on the sound there? I don't know if it's dark. There's something kind of residency about it, or why were you picking that 1984 synth preset sound for that? Well, I didn't really think in terms of 1980s. I'm just going by what sounds appealing to me at the time. And being known as a drummer, I figured, well, with all the recordings that I manufacture, I try to make the drum sound different from piece to piece. I'm not really one of these people that sets up a drum set in a corner, mics it up, and then never leaves that setting. I like to start anew for every piece that I work on. So even though I wasn't considering any sound in particular when I started working on this suite, I decided once I got into it, the idea of what was going to be happening rhythmically suggested to me that I would have three different drum systems employed during the course of this suite. So that's how it came up with three distinct sections. So for this initial drum part, it almost sounds like you're using just a single room mic or maybe two room mics kind of far away. It's like, it's not the standard, you know, everything close mic'd. Is that just an illusion? That's just the way you're mixing it? Or is that actually how it was recorded? Well, it was recorded all in the same room, but I applied different effects, different levels of compression, equalization, and reverbs and such. But like I said before, the whole idea of the sound behind this particular suite was influenced by my continuing to work on it. So I didn't really have any ideas in mind when I started. The only thing I knew for sure was I was going to put down a time reference for each individual section and I was going to improvise some kind of a drum part over it and then refine the part from there. So the drums, as with the rest of this particular Transophone EP, all these selections that you hear, the drums were recorded first to a time reference with no idea in mind what was going to come afterwards, whether it be lyrical, melodically, or chordal. Everything just started with raw drum tracks. That makes sense. And were these three sections actually recorded as three different jams? I mean, what connects the first and the second is just this roll. And it sounds like I'm definitely not hearing the same click track in the very beginning as in the end, unless you're just ignoring it at the beginning. What I did was I reset time structures for each of the three sections. And then I just played within a given time frame just by chance. And then I started to edit from there. But one thing I do as a recordist is when I'm recording, which is usually by myself, except when Janet's here and we're doing some stuff together, it's 1913, I will put down some kind of time reference and I will try to play a performance all the way through without stopping and punching in to fix sections. So until I get a performance that can stand up from beginning to end, I just keep working at it. The very beginning does sound so kind of sloppy because then when you lock in at just about 20 seconds in with the bass, then it just sounds sort of extra super tight. You know, it's not just a riff going into that. It's kind of a flailing orchestra tuning up. Like I almost sound like you're sound checking the drums at the beginning there. I'm just doing a few rolls, doing a few rolls, you know, no obvious connection to a click. Right. Yeah. 
that's a good way to look at it. I wouldn't necessarily describe it as sloppy. <laughs> I would think maybe it has more of a free aspect to it, partially influenced by my extensive career as a freeform jazz artist as well. So some of what I'm doing there in that first section of the suite might be a little bit more loose than what you hear in the second section or the third section. Mm-hmm. And I assume the 16th note tambourine was an overdub just to kind of solidify things. What what a powerful net to then cast over all this careful drumming you've done. What made you chuck that on there? I love playing percussion and I like how it interacts with drum tracks. So that again was just something that came to mind as I was working on the piece. I happen to really love the tambourine though and there's quite an art to playing the tambourine and especially if you're playing for some time to really have it lock in with the groove, especially going by the technique which I just described where when I'm recording by myself, I tend to want to do a performance from start to end rather than punching in to fix certain things. So in that way, your hand can get pretty tired playing the tambourine for maybe three minutes at a time. Oh yeah, no, I I think last album of mine that we pretty much ended up okay, get one good measure, figure out which measure is the best and let's copy it throughout the song because it just... Uh, Then you just looped it. Okay. It was not worth it for that effect to not, you know, if it wasn't going to be super tight. Right. (laughs) Just the whole approach to the vocal, the double tracking, the way that you're answering yourself as opposed to, say, having Janet do it, this whistling part that kind of sort of the same melody line but a little different, also double tracked. any sort of comments about those decisions of, you know, this is not double tracking like early Beatles. This is a something else. Well, when I got to the whistling section, I wanted to put something in that space. And I referred back to my mentor of sorts, Captain Beefheart, and thinking about his love of whistling and how he featured whistling on a lot of his music. So I did a little tip of the hat, little homage to the captain there with the whistle. I like the idea of a lyric being mysterious, especially in the context of this suite that I put together. And I didn't really have any particular notion in mind when I was starting to craft the lyric. I think what made the most importance to me was that I would have something that would flow in a melodic way and not having to be too precise about lyrical content, what I was trying to get across. It was more like using the words for their cadence and the ideas that they may suggest. I like the use of that background vocal in that way of the echoing. I think of 60s girl groups kind of, you know, or, you know, you've got your Elvis vocal in the front and then this answering chorus, but to then deliver that with a sort of lo-fi velvet underground kind of aesthetic that it's, you know, it's your voice, it's still in basically the same range, but it provides just enough of that like choir feel that it just brightens it up a little bit. I'm very interested in in creating different kinds of backing vocals. And whether I create all the parts myself or I bring some other people in to help me, it's been something that I've always paid attention to in my music. And I think this has to go all the way back to when I first started listening to music, when I started listening to the Beatles. And of course, you have four incredible vocalists in that group, and there's a lot of background singing going on. So I figure whenever I have a chance to do any backgrounds, I really enjoy the idea of trying to craft something really specific to that particular piece of music I'm working on. 
Well, and you were always shunted in the fams, right, to playing, to singing the high part, just because Brian's voice was so much lower. We are all baritones, right? I sang in a few different ranges on the FEMS recordings, and I think I'm probably singing backgrounds on almost all the different FEMS songs. There might be a few here and there, but a lot of times I'm just singing backgrounds with Gordon, or I'm singing a dual part with him, like in a piece called I'm, I Know It's True, But I'm Sorry to Say. It's almost like a dual lead vocal. But I had more of a singing voice. Brian had more of a speaking voice. So that's kind of how we like to think of how we would orchestrate the background vocals when we get to that point in the recording. I'm always interested in how these songs end. Section. Just the fact that you enter onto this new chord and it sounds like it's, you know, in a blues tune or something, you know, you've got your, you're sitting on the one and you go up to the four or the five and then you're back to the one. And it sounds like it's going to go back to that, but no, that's just the end of the song. What was sort of guiding your, that whole end part is only about 40 seconds long, but it clearly could have, like Procol Harum, you know, dragged on quite a bit longer. Any, any thoughts of uh, why that length, how, why end that way? That's where the drums ended. that makes sense it wasn't like the music was designed to particularly end there as far as thinking quarterly but the drums ended there the the improvisation that i did with the drums ended there so when i was starting to lay down the bass part i had to figure out okay how do i end this and it seemed to me given what was happening overall in this suite of music that the end should be a little bit precarious in that it doesn't really set as an ending. Like you said, it doesn't come back to the one. It just kind of leaves you hanging there, which I really liked as a dramatic device. I thought that was interesting to listen to that. And also in the sequence of the five-song EP, I like how that then set up the next piece of music that was going to appear. Yeah. Well, let's get out the second song to have another example here. Carry Me, going back a little to the self-titled Victor DiLorenzo album, 2013. I saw this was written with your son. Is that right? That's correct. My son, Malachi. Malachi is an incredibly gifted musician. In fact, he's one of these people that makes you sick because he can pick up any instrument and within 10 minutes, he'll figure out how to play something on it. We got together. He lives in Los Angeles now, but he was here in Milwaukee staying for a while after he had gotten out of New York where he was going to school. And so we decided to do some music together. And I had this idea of maybe starting out a piece that would have a little bit more of a rustic, almost a folky percussion quality to it. And we laid down these percussion tracks, Mal and I, and then we figured out what the music was going to be over it, of course. But first, we just wanted to get a real interesting, very rhythmically oriented, and surprisingly, the choice of what percussion instruments we were using. We wanted to create a sound feel of sorts of many kinds of percussion instruments, and of course, some drum set work as well. But then once we started getting into writing the music aspect over the rhythmic aspect, I guess Mal had an idea of the bass part. And then we built up the other instruments around that. And then when it came time to start singing, this idea just came to me about if someone's in need of help, will the person that's being asked indeed come and help them? 
And in that way, I was almost kind of saying to my son, hey, help me with this music. So carry me is being used as a metaphor in that way. And then something that I got into towards the end was doing a little bit of trying to scream and pitch almost a la Jim Morrison. <laughs> yes, definitely think of that. That's kind of figured at the end, referring to uh, our dear friend Captain Beefheart again. It almost has that kind of a clickety-clack percussion, like a lot of the music on Captain Beefheart's album, Lick My Decals Off Baby Has, which is a really big influence on me, the stuff that Art Tripp and John Drumbo French played on that particular record. obvious feast of percussion here but crazy that it started as a percussion jam and it ends up being basically the lead single on the album the thing that kicks it off it's super melodic could definitely be a femme song yeah let's start with those percussion so is it two kits and a timbali or i'm hearing a lot of rim shot sort of sounding things well if i recall correctly we had some kind of a drum set and we had individual snare drums one was a slingerland snare drum that I think is probably an early 60s model, tuned wide open. That's where a lot of those real interesting press rolls that kind of sneak in and out of the song come from. And then a Gretsch cocktail drum, uh, circa 1954. Besides that, there are, I think there's some jingly jangle stuff and maybe some tambourine in there. And also some very high tuned like you said, timbales. I, th I think they were single-headed tom-toms that we tuned very high. Yeah, it took a while to create that percussion field, but 
I like how kinetic it feels. And you can really hear the difference between the different percussion instruments. They're not all blending into one, as sometimes you want to have happen. I was really into capturing the distinct sounds of all the percussion on that particular song. I guess the main thing that surprised me about this is that given it started as kind of a drum circle jam, that it's only two minutes and 17 seconds long. Was this an edit from how you initially put this together or this is just, this is how long you recorded for? Again, it's a case of just that's how long we recorded for. And I tell you, it's a real freeing way to work where you don't have to feel as though you're being constricted by any kind of criterion that you put on yourself, especially when you're playing the drums. A lot of people look at the drums as just a supportive instrument. But I guess because of my background in jazz, I like to think of the drums as being part of the music, not just something that the music is laid over. The drums can be very expressive and they can play melodies and they can also enforce a structure or defy a structure. So in this particular case, the drums are really leading the idea of what the structure is going to be. Now, we didn't talk on the last song about the bass sound, and both of these have very interesting low bass sounds. I guess just to look back at Invisible Shadows for a second, was that just, I see it's attributes to you with playing bass guitar. Was that just anything unusual about the sound on that? It's a bass keyboard. Okay. And I found, well, actually, I didn't even find it. Janet found a keyboard, like a $100 Casio keyboard, that quite rightly, I really sing its praises because there's a lot of incredible sounds on there. And what you can do on board the particular keyboard is you can combine sounds. So that particular bass sound also deep within it is buried. I think there's some choral sounds and there's also, I believe there's an organ patch in there as well. The main bass sound, the very deep sound is a modification of an acoustic bass sound. Okay, so now for Carry Me, say a little about that, because that sounds like it's layered, that there actually is, it sounds like it's one fuzz bass thing, but then at one point in the song, the two things separate, so that I hear just the bass and I hear the fuzz you know, doing something else. There's a keyboard bass in that, and then there's also a Fender bass. Okay, which is then being doubled by the same keyboard sound higher for part of the song, sort of when the treble E part comes in? I think Mel, who handled the bass on that, yeah, he kind of jumped out around a little bit on the keyboard and also on the bass. I promise I'll be better. A year from now. Yeah, it's funny. The bass keyboard in, in that particular song reminds me of something that may turn up on a PJ Harvey record. Yes, you can do that kind of thing on regular bass, but with keyboard, it's easier to get a really messed up sound. You have to have horrible pedals and things that most bass players don't like to use for because it takes away too much of their low, their actual low end. Right. But for this song, I think we figured that we wanted a grisly, growly kind of a sound that was fuzzed out to a certain extent, but still you'd be able to discern the notes. Yeah, let me play a little more of that section to get where I was talking about. Just that then a parallel octave is coming in, you know, so that, mm -hmm. oh, I thought this was bass, but now it's obviously keyboard just played in parallel octaves or just pushing the button that adds a higher octave, whichever one. They're so very locked in together. But I like that the whole lyrical content has a blues sort of feel just in that there are a limited number of elements, a lot of repetition within the lines to make it sound very primal in the same way that when you just have these, okay, this one 
melody is just basically repetitive and it comes in and it comes out just to give a little division between the sections. I don't hear a lot in your repertoire of really overly wordy stuff. Well, it depends. Some of my music does have a higher lyrical content or more developed or simply just more words. But coming from a theatrical background, I like to get to the point as quick as I can. And I find that the notion of using repetition is a very powerful device to use, especially if you're trying to get one particular point across. And then that booty, booty, actually having it go into this <laughs> octave thing, it kind of puts the whole song on hold for a second. You know, it, we're not moving forward. We're just playing. Right. It gives a feeling of suspension, which I really like. Yeah, I guess I think of uh, some of these things, you know, of course, as you're mimicking either the sounds of sort of the human body in terms of breathing in, breathing out, you know, just what you're trying to do. The more primal the drums get, the more you're trying to reflect what the heartbeat or <laughs> this, this kind of thing. I like that idea. And contrasting that with these mechanical things, that's like, in fact, one of the philosophical definitions of humor is when something is happening kind of too mechanically. This is uh, Henri Bergson, just to be pretentious and name drop. But like when you're watching a marionette or whatever, like, why is that funny? Or somebody doing the robot. It's because they're kind of violating this basic human rhythms. Oh, yes. They're becoming the man machine. Yes, yes. And I'm hearing a, a lot of that, you know, the playing with that. The fact that those things in this song fit together so well, right? It's primal, it's basic, but it also has a little bit of that, you know, Devo, Electronica thing, even though you're playing all the stuff by hand. Right. You talked about the Jim Morrison. We're going to do a few barbaric yops at the end here. That was an association that my son made after we recorded the vocal. I certainly wasn't trying to pimp Jim Morrison in any way, but it does kind of sound like him in a way. Maybe I was being possessed by his ghostly spirit at that point. I don't know. Yes. And, and I guess I wouldn't have necessarily associated with that. But when you get to that point, you do that like, oh, it has a sort of Riders on the Storm feel to the whole song, just in terms of like the synth bass and the overall, you know, let's have a bass riff that is basically carrying the song besides the drums. I could see that comparison in a way. We're playing a little bit with the idea of a drone song here, just, you know, in that let's, you know, make it percussion based and then stay on the same chord with a repeating bass riff. Let's get our third song out there, Arco Pizzicato by 1913 from The Dream, 2016, which I will also point folks to a live version of this, which has a very different approach to the, you know, you're not, there's no electronic drums in that. You're just playing it yourself. This is from about a year ago. And it doesn't even have this all the same cello improv licks, but it, you can see, I wasn't completely sure they were the same song until you got to the singing part. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Okay. And that one's even longer than this. So what, what folks are about to hear is a little over nine minutes long. Do you want to say a little about it before we subject them to that? That song was created also as a homage and a tip to the hat of craft work. And of course, it's a sad day today in that Florence Schneider, one of the co-leaders of the German group Kraftwerk just died today, result of uh, cancer. But anyway, when we were putting together that particular track, there was two things we had in mind. We wanted to create some kind of electronic ambience via the drums and the accompanying instruments, a la Kraftwerk. And also the lyrical content was devised to pay respect to our recently departed friend and master bassist, Rob Wasserman. That's why the lyric deals with the ideas of 
kind of loss and and also uh, looking at things in a musical context that would maybe refer to a different personality aspect of the person being talked about or what have you. And the little patches that come in and out are things that Janet created on her looper. So there's sometimes maybe six or seven cello parts reduced to one loop. And then we would fly those loops into the track. The whole structure leading up to the point where the synthetic drums are taken over by a real drum set, those parts are all more or less in the realm of craft work. When we get to the end, where it turns out to be a real acoustic drum set, a bass guitar, and a trumpet feature by the uh, famous jazz trumpeter Jamie Brevik, who lives here in Milwaukee. This is another example of a piece of music that we wanted to write that would take you on a little bit of a journey. So it wouldn't be just one static idea all the way through. There would be different parts of it. Not necessarily suggesting a suite like the Invisible Shadows piece that we talked about. This was more just uh, Janet and I bouncing ideas off of one another and holding true to the idea that whatever we did, we wanted it to pay respect to our friend Rob Wasserman. And also we wanted the overall atmosphere to be very dreamy almost like a sleepwalker in a somnambulistic dream. So I really like that song, not only because it's a long song, but the world of it is very interesting to me.
again, I'm comparing this to the live version and like the main character of this at the beginning is that electronic drum thing that you set up, which again, so the delays on that, that's all the treatment in post. That's not just the sample you found that goes. That's all treatments I did after the fact. What you're hearing there is an old Alesis drum machine. I think it's the 80s when I got it. I came up with a pattern and then I treated that pattern. And like I said, there's a transition in the last third of the piece where it switches to a real drum set. As far as the construction of this, was this, again, a jam drums? And there's a lot of room. And I can see in the live version how that works as an improvisational set. Okay, now we're, we're dwelling on this for a while. Now we'll have a few cello riffs. Now we'll have a keyboard come do a little riff. And because it's the same note as the drone, it actually gives a lot of harmonic freedom in terms of like what those individual riffs can be, you know, what, how they're playing off. What was the sequence of events in this recording in terms of deciding what was going to go where and how long the thing was going to go? Of course, when we play live, it's usually just Janet and I, although we sometimes play as a quartet with a couple of other musicians. But of course, for the recording aspect, you can have as many Janets or as many Victors as you want on the particular track, which is what happened in the recorded track. But it started again with just creating that synthetic drum beat. And then Janet and I just figured what we'd want to put on top of it. I think the first thing that we started to add were these clumps of these cello loops that she created. Then we flew those in. And then we got to the idea that maybe we could use the whole piece of music as a celebration of our friend Rob Wasserman who has played with us a couple times, and we were planning on doing more recording with Rob, but then unfortunately he died. But anyway, we, we start thinking about, well, if there's a lyric aspect, how can we in some ways encapsulize our love and our feelings of respect and loneliness now that Rob was gone? How could we figure that into the lyric without being real direct? So there's just a suggestion of emotion rather than trying to be clear-cut on what is being said. Yeah, it's only now that I see where's the note sounds so low. Like, okay, you're talking about your missing bass player, but no, I, there's no way I would have figured that out. Which is okay, because confusion is the first step in the learning process. So people have to always understand what they're seeing or hearing. In fact, sometimes I think it's advisable. <laughs> Let me just pull out early in the song one of these, I just wrote weird cello riffs, but it's obviously like a, a little clip of one of these loops that you're bringing in. And then it's gone and nothing like that ever comes back in the rest of the song. It's like you're driving down a road and you're just passing different scenes going on or something. Oh, that's a nice way to look at it. Sure, you're absorbing all the different billboards or what the farmer's doing in his field or, or there's a fire on the side of the road, whatever it is. Sure. And obviously we get some pizzicato, we get Arco. And then this 115 and the single note keyboard line, I wanted to ask you about whether this was you or Janet or... which to me has a very Residence flavor. You said you're a Beefheart fan. Are you a Residence fan as well? Oh, sure. Yeah. In fact, Violent Femmes in our day, we did some playing with Eric Drew Feldman. He'd sat in with us a couple of times. And also Snakefinger sat in with us and played guitar with us a few times. Damn. There's definitely some Beefheart connection going on there. That single note fractured piano sound is the part that Janet came up with. 
And I really liked the quality and the mystery involved in that sound of that particular piano patch. And now I know what long, tall daddy with a sturdy soul means. Okay, so I don't, <laughs> I don't have to ask about that. Yeah, that's Rob Wasserman. So at some point you add this, is the intro, the introduction of the real drum set where you're just stirring soup, as they say, with the, <laughs> the brushes on the snare, this about three minutes in. It's, it kind of comes in, in the middle of a phrase. There's a couple little drum interruptions that appear, but when I start playing the sit-down drum set, I'm playing sticks at that point. Originally, I think there was a bass part that Janet had put down, but then we replaced the keyboard bass with my son Malachi playing Fender bass. And then I figured I would like to have a nice little trio taking the song out, and we would like to have a featured instrument at the end. And we were thinking, well, what could it be, a flute? Could it be a tenor sax? What have you? And then Janet and I remembered our friend uh, Jamie Brevik, who's an incredible trumpet player. So we decided to have him come in and put in his harm and mute and almost uh, give a little uh, notion of having Miles Davis sit in with us. Yeah, and that's especially unexpected given the palette of sounds that if you're thinking residents, if you're thinking, again, kind of like in Invisible Shadows, where it's these, you know, not the most cutting edge synth sounds that they're sort of purposefully Synthy, maybe that was, you know, in that case, more craft work referenced. In fact, let me play just one more of those sounds. This recurrent Herbie Hancocky. I'm trying, I'm not, not, what's the appropriate synth sound reference for this? It almost sounds like it's some kind of a keyboard sound that escaped from. Oh, I don't know, the uh, X-Files uh, soundtrack or something. I mean, I guess you just push turn on the glide button, unless that's just... The slides and pitch are built into that sample. Okay, so it's a sample, it's not a analog, it has a vaguely analog flavor. Right. So when you've set this up with a lot of, I mean, of course there's real cello, so we're not in craftwork land. There's a healthy mix of synthesized and real sounds, acoustic sounds, but then just to have a trumpet of that level of fluency come in, that's kind of jarring. The song has gone a long way. Not not jarring in a bad way, but like, yeah, definite movement. We wanted it to pay off at the end. We figured, okay, we're in the final reel of this movie. What happens to the protagonist? So we figured, okay, let's feature some instrument that rightly, as you said, would be inspired or a little bit jarring because you're not really thinking something like this will appear. But I think that's a lot of the magic that's included in the music I make and the music I make together with Janet as 1913. We appreciate cultivating our own uniqueness and also encouraging the unknown. We like to be surprised by what we're doing just as much as people who listen to what we're doing are. Yeah, let's talk a little more generally about your participation in 1913 and in the jazz scene, I guess. I see a lot of looking around YouTube, you know, somebody featuring Victor De Lorenzo. So you've done a lot of sit-in gigs. How long has this passion gone back to? Were you doing this even during Violent Femmes time, or is this discovered in the latter days? Well, in grade school, I started out playing viola. And then when I got into high school, I started taking piano lessons. 
And the only reason I, I started playing drums was there was a friend of my cousin's who was going to Vietnam and he had a drum set to sell. So for $350, I bought this four-piece Slingerland drum set with cymbals. And for the first couple of weeks I had it, it sat in my parents' basement and I would come home from school and I would look at it and then I would just pass it by and continue on to my room because I didn't know how to set it up. I didn't know how to play. I just wanted to buy the drum set to help this fellow out. So after a while, I brought over a friend of mine that did play drums and he helped me set up the drum set and she showed me a couple of things. And then I started playing along to records. And then I started studying in my hometown of Racine, Wisconsin. There was a very incredible jazz drummer by the name of Joe Police. And I studied with him for a period of three years. And then when I went to university here in Milwaukee, University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, I studied not only literature, but also theater and music. And I studied with Telly Lesbines of the Milwaukee Symphony. And that's where I worked on symphonic snare drum and also timpani. So I'm schooled in those regards, but it's been a long, crazy trip. But I tried to incorporate music in a lot of what I do in my life. Of course, as an actor, I've used a lot of music in productions that I've produced or written or acted in or was music supervisor for. As far as the jazz jamming in particular, so I understand this partnership that became 1913 just started as a basically a freeform jazz gig. Yeah, Janet had called me one Saturday afternoon and said she had a show that evening Would I'd like to come and sit in. I had come across and got to know her a little bit via the improvisational scene here in, in Milwaukee. So we did some shows that we were both taking part in. And then she called me this Saturday afternoon and said, hey, do you want to come and play? And so I said, sure, I'll come. What, what should I bring? She goes, oh, you can bring whatever you want. So I brought a snare drum and a cymbal. And I sat in with her. And during the course of the evening, there was another drummer who was there who had a full drum set. So when I saw that he was going to be there, I went, oh, this is good because now I can kind of graft onto what he's doing because I didn't know any of the material. So at the end of the night, the show had gone exceptionally well, played a couple sets and it was really fun playing her music. And at the end, we were loading up our gear and I, I said to the other drummer, boy, I'm really happy that you were here because I didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, I, I was prepared to improvise and it didn't really scare me. But at the same time, you start thinking, well, this is going to be a little bit of a challenge. I should prepare myself for this. But I said, yeah, this was really great that you were here because I could just play along with you. And then he looked at me and he said, well, you mean you never played the music before either? And I said, no, you mean you hadn't played it either? <laughs> so Janet had tricked us both to coming down there. And not only did we never have the occasion to play with Janet, but we had never played with one another either. But in short, it was a grand experiment that turned out to be fantastic. And then the three of us went on to play as 1913 for, I think, the next close to three and a half years. And then at that time, Janet and I reduced the band down to just the two of us because the other drummer had some health problems and couldn't play anymore. So I see you've had about five, six releases with them. How do you think about these various, you're doing, have a bunch of uh, balls in the air simultaneously. Which is your day job? <laughs> is the theater work your day job? I'm really happy that I'm not locked down into any one particular discipline. I, I have all kinds of things that excite me and inspire me. And I'm, I just happen to be one of these really fortunate people that I can also make a, a living out of what many people would consider to be hobbies. So yes, I, f I feel very fortunate in that regard. And not only playing as the drummer or working as any other kind of musician, whether it be playing guitar or keyboard or something, 
I'm happy to fit in all different kinds of genres of music. And then I also just love writing. Plus, I'm interested in photography and I'm a watercolor artist. And I also just like to be alive and enjoy the day. And as far as the music goes, is there one thing that kind of funds the other one? Are they all more or less self-supporting or are they all at the mercy of other activities in terms of being able to keep making albums? Well, until we got into the stage now of this pandemic warfare that we're in the middle of, Janet and I were really looking forward to playing a lot of live shows coming up this year because we had just recently acquired a booking ad agent after looking for one for about four years. So we found someone that was sympathetic to what we do, and we were really excited about developing more of our live performance aspect. But now that that's been taken away, we're starting to think about working on the next 1913 record. Janet's writing some material now, and I just finished compiling a bunch of different drum tracks just to give to her that she could start working with. So it's going to be almost like a by-mail kind of way of putting together this next series of recordings, because until it's safe for us, we don't really want to be in the same room and be working together. So that's fun. It's, it's a, almost a, a criterion that's been imposed on us, but that's okay. I find it as a very pleasant idea of a challenge. Sure. I mean, I like doing it both ways, but there are definite advantages. Even back in my first bands, like we would, a couple of us had four tracks or we'd, you know, pass the four track to the third guy. So just like, I don't have to listen to you slave over your guitar solo for, for a week. Just do it. I just want it to come back and hopefully I will like it. And now at least now with digital stuff, now I can fix all the stuff that I don't like about your guitar solo. So it's a definite, you know, we're unfortunately not to the point where the lag time is tight enough that you could actually play with somebody remotely and have that at all work. <laughs> like, Well, you know, coming from a theater background, I really value the idea of collaboration. And sometimes you don't find that in the world of music because either egos get in the way or money or people just not willing to collaborate because they're afraid to give up too much of their austerity. But I, I've always really enjoyed that aspect of making music as making theater as well. I like working with different people, even though I'm, I'm still comfortable working on music myself. In fact, uh, what I'm trying to do right now is start a new collection, maybe another five-song EP, which will be mostly instrumental music that I'll put together by myself, and then either have some kind of spoken word over the top of it, or maybe some kind of chanting, but not anything really resembling lyrical-based, which you would think is traditional singing. I want to do something with the voice that is more akin to if you would pick up an instrument and the instrument would make the sound of this voice. Well, 360 degrees away from that, let's introduce the last song, Audrey from Pancake Day, 1996. So I guess I wanted to ask you but just about the difference in, am I right then with this 1913 sounds like that's your, your main band in terms of playing out? Whereas these, the Transophone and the Victor DiLorenzo self-titled record are maybe are more purely studio things where you even, did you have a live band? It sounds like back in the Pancake Day days that like you were going full on, like this is my live, I'm the, now the front guy to a, a live rock band. I had that uh, happen around the, the Pancake Day time, but also, I'm not sure you're aware of this, but I started, I was a lead singer in bands before I even played any drums. And once I transitioned into playing drums, my first band I had with a friend of mine in Racine, Wisconsin, where I grew up, was a band that we called Fresh Lettuce. And in that band, he played guitar and I played drums and I sang. And then 
we got another guitarist and, and finally a bass player. So then it turned into a regular rock quartet. But I'd always been very into the idea of being a singer. I really enjoyed that. But once we started getting into things with violent femmes where it's almost the unwritten rule was we were going to back Gordon's material. So as far as the idea of Brian and, and myself writing material for the band, that wasn't really agreed to be a good thing. We just, the three of us decided, let's just back Gordon's material so we'll have more of a cohesive idea to present to people. But then a couple songs came through. One song that I wrote called World Without Mercy. And there's another song called uh, Love and Me Make Three that Brian and I wrote together. So those are the only two songs in the Violent Femmes collection that were not written by Gordon. Yeah, it seems like maybe a little bit of a victim of success, that that's the sound of the first album is what people are expecting. And so, you know, if you were completely unsuccessful, but yet still, for whatever reason, you know, wanted to keep playing together, it seems there is more room there for, you know, let's just milk everybody for all the talent they have. You know, if you keep putting out 10 albums, 12 albums, like, why not let everybody do whatever they can do? Well, it was the idea of what a band meant to each of the three members. For me, I always thought a band was the Beatles, and they were happy together. They made great music together. They supported one another. Uh, someone like uh, Gordon and Brian, I think they're more into the idea of solo artists, a la Lou Reed or someone of that uh, caliber. So they weren't dependent on the idea of a band as much as I am. So that's why I think there was maybe a little bit of tension at the beginning, but then I'm certainly no idiot, and I decided, along with Brian, that, hey, Gordon's writing some really incredible music here. Let's just support this 100%, and then maybe we'll see what happens in the future. And what happened in the future was we just continued to have a respect and, and um, just a, an appreciation of Gordon's songwriting abilities that we wanted to keep fostering. And that's what we did until the end. Except the last few years I was with the group, Gordon had decided not to bring any new material into the band because I think there was one particular session where he had brought some new music in and Brian was very dismissive of it. And I, I think it shook Gordon's confidence a little bit and maybe as a way of not having to deal with the problem anymore or maybe as a way to spite Brian, he decided he wasn't going to bring any more new music in. So it's like at that time, the Femmes became a glorified jukebox that would tour the world. Sure. Well, yeah, and I guess they're still playing the first album, you know, in full in every set. So that's its own kind of purgatory. I don't know, the, doing the playing something you like, but, you know, for the millionth, trillionth time. That never bothered me because of my training as an actor. I was used to with long runs of, of plays. So whatever you had to do to get yourself into that state of mind to deliver the performance that evening whether or not you could just work on some kind of an autopilot, which is really not the preferable way, but it's up to you, your responsibility as an actor, to bring the words of the writer to life and also to find the, the veracity, the, the truth of what you're saying as, as the character on stage. So getting into your solo albums, I wasn't able to get my hands on the first one, but the second one, uh, Pancake Day being the second, Blessed Faustino being the third, those are you know tremendously eclectic, very energetic, you know, very well produced. Audrey, though, one of the most likable songs off of those is certainly not the most elaborate <laughs> production. It's kind of a nice birds-like, you know, really tuneful thing. You don't just want to say anything about this song or your approach at this, at this point. Sure. 
Audrey was written as a tribute to the Beatles. My co-producer and, and my friend who plays guitar and works with me on, on my recordings, Mike Hoffman, is also a Beatle fanatic. So one day I was sitting around thinking, well, I want to do a, a song that resembles the Beatles, not only in instrumentation, but in the spirit and the feel of it. And also I wanted to feature that last chord, the last vocal chord in the song, which is, of course, you know, paying a little bit of uh, respect to the Beatles yeah. Yes, she loves you. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much for doing this. You're welcome, Mark. Audrey looks happy Asleep in a pile By the foot of the door She's happy, baby You know she doesn't really need much more It's alright You know it's gonna work out fine What's up with Audrey, baby? You know it's gonna be alright Heaven help Audrey The pain that she feels Can't be measured or seen And when she's crying Baby, the older she gets The younger she feels But it's alright
Thanks so much to Victor. I'm a longtime Violent Femmes fan. I have just about all their CDs sitting behind me here, so this was a great one to discharge. And of course, I'd love to talk to Gordon Gano and Brian Ritchie as well. I see they've released another album in 2019. And I hope you check out Victor's solo stuff or 1913. Again, you can get that at victordelorenzo.weebly.com and 1913.com. Also look him up on SoundCloud. My next interview is with Jim Peterick, another Midwesterner, the main songwriter for Survivor, and before that, Ides of March. That was with a new promo person who reached out to me, offering me her roster of artists. And I have just yesterday done my second interview from that pot with Mark Farner, who's the leader of Grand Funk Railroad, through all their albums in the 70s and early 80s. Make sure you get all those episodes without delay by subscribing directly to Nakedly Examined Music through Apple Podcasts or wherever. You can grab the feed from nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, put it in whatever podcast app you'd like. And of course, I would love your direct support through patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Hope you're all continuing to be safe, be creative, keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. <laughs>